0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. I wondered if any of you may have uh, misread the sermon title this morning as you came in. I thought if you kind of glanced at it, people may say, oh, the beginning of the end, you know, a gloom and doom end times message. But if you reread it again, it's not the beginning of the end, it's actually the end of the beginning. And that's not just a play on words to make a a little more creative sermon title. It's actually a spiritual principle that we'll see this morning. One of the chapters uh, that we read through Radical was titled, Beginning at the End of Ourselves. Beginning at the End of Ourselves. And I know many of you have gone through the Henry Blackaby course, Experiencing God. Henry Blackaby kind of summed up uh, this thought by saying, God always calls us to something bigger than ourselves. God always calls us to something bigger than ourselves, and he says that God does that for two reasons. The first is so that we will rely on God and not ourselves to accomplish the work or the task that God sets before us. So he calls us to something bigger, so we'll rely upon him to do that task. But secondly, God does that so that when the work is finished, God gets the glory for that work And not us. We can't say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. We and all people look and say, look at what God has done in this situation or through this person's life. And so I've been underscoring this principle throughout our radical study that once we understand the commands and the demands of Jesus in our lives, the only thing that's left to be determined is whether or not we're going to be obedient once we understand the commands and the demands of Jesus, the only issue that remains for us is whether or not we are going to obey those calls upon our life. Because if we're willing to step out in obedience, then everything else, every result, every work, every other aspect of us being obedient to Jesus' commands and demands is left up to God. It's he who accomplishes And does his work for his sake and for his honor. So really we can kind of just stop and and say the questions are, are things such as this. Is God able to handle the details of our lives? Can we give over control? Is God able to take care of the details of our life? Can he provide for us? Can God protect us? Will God do what he has said he will do in his word? And I think most of us would say yes. We would say, well, yeah, we we believe God can do and he can accomplish all of these things. So that means the real issue then is one of trust. When it all comes down to it, it's an issue of trust. Are we willing, are you willing to trust God with your life? And I mean every aspect, not just your spiritual life, but of your physical life and existence as well. That's today's question. Are you willing to trust God with your life? John chapter 12 begins Jesus' march toward the cross of Calvary. In John 12, he's entered Jerusalem for the last time. He's about to spend significant amounts of time with his disciples, teaching them, giving them some final instructions. And chapter 12, as he begins this uh, march toward the cross, takes place as the Passover feast is occurring in Jerusalem. And the Passover feast was a time of celebration and commemorating God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. And in cha- John chapter 12, verse 20, It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. First thing I want you to see this morning is that we never know who is ready to come to Christ. We never know who is ready to come to Christ. Here were some Greeks, some non-Jewish people in the middle of the biggest Jewish celebration that takes place every single year. And the Jews were celebrating the Passover, which was the time when the Lord, in delivering his uh, children from Egyptian slavery, uh, sent a final plague that was gonna cause the Egyptians to let the Israelites go uh, and move back to the the land of Canaan. And so uh, God was gonna come through the the nation and he was gonna kill the firstborn, people, animals, everything. There was gonna be great death uh, and sorrow and tragedy that was gonna happen uh, as the Lord came through this one evening. And so he instructed the Israelites to take a a lamb, a one-year-old lamb without defect and to kill it and then take and put some of that blood over the doorposts of their home. And as the Lord passed through, when he came to those door frames that had the blood spread over it, he would pass over. He would skip those homes. There would be life in that home instead of death that those that were uncovered were experiencing. Now, we don't know why these Greeks were in Jerusalem. Maybe they were God-fearers who were wanting to convert to Judaism or who had already done that. We're not real sure why they were there. Maybe they were on business and just kind of got caught up in the whole mess of what was taking place. We don't know, but we do know one request they made while they were there. Verse 21, they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Jesus, we, We've heard a lot about him. We, we hear these stories. We want to see Jesus. And what's awesome is that these Greeks come seeking Jesus who was God's ultimate and final Passover lamb. Jesus Christ would come, and he was about to give his life on the cross of Calvary, that his blood that was shed, that all who believed and received the covering of that blood in faith through Jesus Christ, that no longer would spiritual death and eternal separation from God be what awaited them, but that death would pass them over, and they would be God's children in his presence for all of eternity. And so these Greeks are coming to see Jesus, who was God's way of salvation. So the last ones you would expect to be looking for Jesus are looking for him. And I've said in recent weeks that it is important that we take the gospel to people who need to hear. Because we never know who is ready to come to Christ. I mean, people don't you know, wear a t-shirt that says, hey, tell me about Jesus. I want to know more about him. That there's not an aura that that you know surrounds people. Just think about how, how awesome it would be if it was color coded, you know. If if people who, who were ready to receive Christ had a green glow around them, you know, green means go. And those who weren't ready had a red glow around them. And the ones with yellow means either proceed cautiously or speed up. I don't know. How, however you determine, you know, the red light system when you see a light. But you know, we don't have these color glows around people telling us who's ready to receive Christ or not. And and I've dug back out, had George bring down this week a door. I've used this illustration before, but I just want to remind you again of this principle because it's so true. We never know who's ready to receive Christ, just as looking at this door, we don't know if this door is locked or unlocked, do we? You can't tell by looking at that door. You can debate and discuss it all you want, but there's a surefire way to know, isn't there? You walk over, grab the knob, give it a little turn and a pull, and what do you know? This one's open. In sharing the gospel, God calls us to go and to share the gospel. And sometimes as we share the gospel and the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of people's hearts, they're not ready. That door is locked. It's not that time. But you know what? That's not about us. That's about God working in that person's heart. But sometimes we come and the Holy Spirit leads us and we knock on the door of a person's heart and the Holy Spirit is using that and their heart is ready and open and receptive for Jesus Christ to come in and become their Savior and Lord. But Jesus calls us to do whatever is necessary, whatever is necessary. Even laying down our own lives for the sake of sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. And if God's working in their heart, maybe they'll receive him. If he's not, then this is a step, an opportunity for them to hear the gospel and God to begin that work in his heart. But here's the thing, and I've said this before. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. Our responsibility is to share the gospel and we leave the results up to God. I will never save anyone. You will never save anyone. Only Jesus Christ saves people. God doesn't hold us responsible for whether or not they receive or reject Christ. Our responsibility is sharing the gospel with them and giving them the opportunity to respond. And here's where our obedience becomes so very important as we think about people around the world, people here in Colonial Heights and in Chester and Chesterfield and in the greater Richmond area and the state of Virginia uh, and then around the world. Here's how our obedience and why our obedience is so important. In Romans, Paul describes that all people, all human beings have an awareness of God And he argues that we get this basic awareness of God, if nothing else, than through creation. And history has proven this, that every people group, every group of individuals that you find, no matter how primitive uh, a lifestyle that may be, they have a God awareness. Now, they may you know, describe it in a lot of different ways, and they may worship it and respond to this higher being that's there. But there is a God awareness that people, human beings, are smart enough to look around us at the world that's created and the order that takes place in creation and go, there must be something bigger and stronger and more powerful Than I am. People recognize that as human beings. We use the theological term to describe that as general revelation. That through creation, God reveals himself to mankind. He reveals that he exists through a general revelation. People recognize that there is a God. I think it's very interesting, as a side note, that only when we become more educated and sophisticated, do we begin to rationalize away that there is a higher being or, or that a God exists? You know, isn't that ironic that the smarter we become, we have to talk ourselves into suppressing something that is innate within all human beings. All human beings have it in its most simple form, but as we get smarter, we go, oh, well, that was just something else. That, that's not really the case. It's ironic how that fleshes itself out. But the Bible teaches that believing in God is not enough for salvation. James writes and says, even demons believe in God, but they're not saved. They're not going to spend eternity in God's presence. So just believing that God exists is not enough for salvation. We need, in in what's called theological terms, special revelation, revelation. We need specific information or knowledge of how we can, in a personal way, know the God that we see revealed in creation. And, and here's how this should work. It's that people recognize God through general revelation and begin to seek after him. To say, I wonder... What there is to be known about this God? Can I know this God? In Deuteronomy 4, God says this uh, through Moses, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So as God stirs something within people to begin to seek after him, which God can do through a number of different ways, through dreams and visions and and through interactions with other persons. There's a lot of ways that God creates this awareness and begins to stir people a hunger and a desire to know him. Uh, But as God begins this desire within them to seek after him, he's also stirring within those who do know him with those who have placed their faith and their trust in Him, who are God's children. God is stirring something within them to say, you know what? I need to be serious about sharing the gospel, and I need to follow God's call, whatever that may look like both here and around the world. I need to be serious about following this, this call so that I can go share the gospel with others. And as God is calling people to seek after him, he's calling us because we are those who are saved and have received the salvation. He's calling us to follow in obedience so that our lives will intersect. At a point where we can share the gospel with those who need to hear, who are seeking, who are longing, who want to know more about this God that they see revealed uh, throughout creation. And we see this fleshed out perfectly in Acts chapter 10. It's an amazing picture. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a man who's a God-fearer, and as he's fearing God one day uh, in a vision, an angel comes to him and says, You need to send for this man named Peter who's going to come and tell you something that you need to hear. And so he sends servants to go and to find Peter. And at the same time he's sending servants, Peter is experiencing in a vision a a word from the Lord that says, there are some men knocking at the door downstairs. You need to go with them, and you need to tell them about me when you get there. So Peter goes down. He goes with the servants. When he gets to Cornelius' house, he shares the gospel, and Cornelius and his entire household are saved. I mean, God gave that that through dreams and vision, and God is still doing that. We get reports of God raising up a lot of different ways that people have a God awareness and is seeking after him. But God always uses people, his people, as the agents for going and sharing the gospel with others. Church, that's our responsibility. That is us, that we're obedient, and we step out, and we follow God's call to make the gospel known to others. Let me illustrate it in this way, and then I want to move on to our second principle this morning. We have several mission trips planned throughout this year. You see those listed on the back of the sermon note sheet this morning. You can see some of the places that that we're making preparations to go. What if at this very moment, God's beginning a work in the heart of a man, woman, or child in one of the places that you see listed there that's causing them to begin seeking after him? They want to know more. Uh, They begin to say, this God that's there, whoever you are, tell me, show me more about yourself. And what if he's beginning to stir that desire to seek after him in their heart? And what if at this very moment, God's beginning to stir in the hearts of you? of people in this room a desire and a burden and an excitement about going to one of these places so that your life can intersect their life so you can share the gospel but what if you don't go what if you don't respond to that call to that stirring that's taking place within you what's what's your excuse for not going do you think that $300 to $3,000 is an obstacle in God taking you to the place where He wants you to be at just the right moment in time to intersect the life of a person who's already now beginning to seek and want to know more about this God that they see in creation? Can God not clear your calendar for the time off for you to be able to step out in obedience and follow this call? Can God not provide for your family? financially for you to be gone for a couple of days or a couple of weeks to go and share the gospel with people who need to hear? Will God not watch over your family and care for them in the time that you're gone sharing the gospel with other people? The issue isn't the call. The issue is our obedience and stepping out on faith and trusting God to provide and take us to where he wants us to be. We're going to move this out to the lobby this week. This is um, our well uh, for what we're calling the the Living Water Project. There's a little lockbox up here with a, a hole in it if you uh, are, are feeling led to put money in here to help provide clean drinking water for people around the world. There's another bulletin insert in there this week that shows you a little bit more information about the, the ministry that our missions committee has wanted to partner with to be able to take the funds that come in from this. And depending on how, how much those funds are, we're going to take and, and do for several of those projects that are listed there. So you can read and find out some information on that. But what if, what if God is stirring in your heart and in the hearts of people of this church that he doesn't want us to just send money over there. He wants you to go and hand deliver the clay pots that are going to provide clean drinking water for people? What, what if God wants you to go and help dig the wells or set up the filtration systems or train and educate the people who need to be trained and educated on how to get clean water from the materials that are sent over there? If you send them over in a truck and they open up, they're going to look at them and go, what do we do with this? You know, they, they need some instruction, some training. Maybe God's calling you to go over and dig some latrines to help sanitation in these parts of the world. And while you're there, people are going to say, Why? Why are you doing this? Why did you come from the other side of the world to to give me a pot that'll provide clean water? Or or why are you here to help uh, dig dig a well? And you can say, there's a God who loves you and who cares about you. And he sent us here because we wanted to help you uh, have clean water so so that you can have a, a, a better physical life, a stronger, healthier physical life. But more importantly than that, this loving, caring, gracious, powerful God spoke to me several months ago and said I needed to come and tell you how you can have a renewed spiritual life how you can be forgiven of your sins how you can spend eternity as one of God's children I have no doubt in my mind that God is stirring within people this call to take the gospel in these ways our issue isn't one of the call it's one of obedience. You never know who's ready to receive the gospel, but what God calls us to is to share so that the Holy Spirit can knock and see if they're ready to place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And this applies to people across the street and around the world. Your responsibility and my responsibility to share the gospel Well, let's see the other principle from this passage. I want you to look and see what Jesus says to these Greeks who came wanting to see him uh, and the disciples overhear the conversation. It says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he uses an analogy from farming that everybody goes, okay, we understand that. And then Jesus applies it spiritually. And this is what Jesus says to us that this should look like in our spiritual lives. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will. We'll honor him. So Jesus tells us that in our lives spiritually, in our journey, in our relationship with him, he calls us to surrender and die to ourselves so that he can live through us, that our lives might bear much fruit. That's why I titled this sermon, The End of the Beginning, because the end of yourself is the beginning of God working through you. The end of yourself is the beginning of God working through you. The beginning of a radically obedient, fully surrendered life through Jesus Christ is the end of lukewarm, passive Christianity. Those things cannot coexist being fully obedient and radically surrendered to Jesus Christ and being lukewarm and passive in your Christianity. They cannot go together in the heart and the life and the spirit of a person Who's willing to put into practice what Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26? That if we're going to die to ourselves to live in Jesus Christ, those two things can't go together. Abandonment to the cause of Christ is the beginning of true fulfillment in your life, and it is the end of the apathetic Christian journey that so many people are experiencing today. And this happens when we die to ourselves. And live in and through Jesus Christ. The analogy of the kernel of wheat dying says it all. Dying to self produces fruit for the kingdom of God. And that's true both metaphorically but also literally. Now think about this. To encourage his disciples, Jesus once told them, Do not fear those who can kill only the body. Do not fear those who can kill only the body. The disciples came. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as a sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out on the front lines of a very intense battle. And he says that your enemy, uh, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion, looking at whom to devour. So when you hear that, that charge, that call to, to go and to do those things, there's gonna be a little fear, a little apprehension. Is there not? And the disciples were expressing that. And so there was some fear, some apprehension of what they may encounter. And Jesus says to them, Ah, don't be worried about people. The worst they can do is kill you. And I think the disciples probably went, that's kind of the point we were trying to make. (laughs) We really don't want to die. (laughs) That's why we were expressing these fears and are afraid of that because we really don't want to die. We kind of like living more than dying. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, "Nah, don't worry about people. What are they going to do, kill you? I mean, when my kids are afraid and they go, Daddy, it's, we're, we're scared. It's dark in here. I don't go, oh, don't worry. The, the monsters don't come out from under your bed till midnight. You know, I don't stoke those fears in my kids. They already have the fears. We kind of generally do the opposite to calm those fears. And Jesus says, I don't worry about people. The worst I can do is kill you. Why would he say that? Jesus said that because he knew that death isn't the end. It's just the beginning of all things eternal. And he knew, he knew that there's no greater reward than giving our lives as we follow the call of Christ in our lives. No greater reward than laying down our life for the name and the cause of Christ. And if our death is the catalyst for bringing others to Christ and into the kingdom of God, then our lives have borne fruit for God's kingdom. We died to ourselves to bear fruit for God's kingdom. And church, we need to make no mistake about it. This means that God may lead us smack dab into the middle of difficult, trying, incredibly painful situations sometimes. Jesus' next words blow the health and wealth prosperity gospel out of the water. Out of the water, there are false teachers all across our land who are, who are teaching that God loves you and wants only good things for you. He wants you to be rich, He wants you to be comfortable and have all the material blessings and material comforts that, that, that you can hold you know that, that, you know you 're told you can have your best life now that 's nonsense church, absolute nonsense, not the words of Jesus Christ, and I will prove that to you by seeing. What Jesus has to say in the next verse, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, Jesus says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You need to underline or highlight the word purpose In your Bible, Jesus says, for this purpose. Well, what purpose is he talking about? Why is his soul troubled? Because he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be beaten beyond recognition and ultimately nailed to a cross to die, church, a horrific death that we can't even wrap our brains around. How painful and horrific it was. And Jesus said, I have come for this purpose. It was by design an intention that Jesus was going to die that death. Do you think that's the best life he could have imagined? Is that the best life that you would imagine? I I wouldn't want that for my worst enemy. Yet it's what Jesus did. And what what was his goal in that? Well, he says it in the very next sentence. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. I've said before that everything about our lives is intended and designed to bring glory to God. Even Jesus' death. And God goes on and he says at the end of verse 28, the voice from heaven comes and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again, speaking about the resurrection. And Jesus says in verse 31, the result of what's going to take place because of his death, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, the worst that Satan can throw at people is death because once we die, we spend eternity either with Christ in heaven or separated from him in hell for all of eternity based upon whether or not we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Death was Satan's crowning jewel, his ultimate weapon. He even used it to to, to kill and to stop. So he thought Jesus' ministry and his work because people were coming to Jesus and they were following after him. And Satan said, I've got to do something about this. And he incited people to kill Christ. But Jesus took Satan's ultimate weapon and he turned it into a cause for celebration and joy. Think about that. He took Satan's ultimate weapon and turned it into a cause for celebration and joy because now we know that death is simply a doorway through which we pass from temporary things on earth into eternal things in God's presence forever. And Jesus reminds us and tells us that the entrance into those eternal things comes only through him. And he says, when he is lifted up, and he's referring to his crucifixion first and foremost because his death allows people to come into relationship and to know God. You know, we talk about the general revelation and special revelation. People say, Who is this God? How can I know him? Jesus says, You know him through me. And so, that his crucifixion and his resurrection was a way that we come into relationship with God. But he's also speaking metaphorically that as we exalt Christ in our lives and as we live our lives in obedience and we follow the commands and the teachings of God's word, that people see. That in our lives, and they say, "You're different. Well, why do you do this? Why do you not do that? You know, why do you have this calm, this peace, this serenity in your life, this sense of fulfillment and contentment?" And we're able to say, "Because of what Jesus has done in my life." And so, as we exalt Him through our lifestyle and how we live, people are drawn to Him. And I hope you recognize that believers are living out these truths today in 2011. There are believers who are dying, who are laying down their lives for the sake and the cause of Christ so that the gospel can be made known to other people. How many of you saw the news reports this week of the couples killed in their yacht by the Somali pirates? I mean, unless you had your head in the sand anywhere, you you saw those reports. And many saw and heard the reports and they shook their heads and kind of clicked their tongues and said, man, what a waste. What a waste. Here are these people who are retired. I think one of them was a dentist. You know, they, they, they apparently were wealthy to have a yacht and be able to do all this sort of stuff. Had everything you could have imagined. Why in the world would they be in that dangerous part of the world putting themselves in harm's way like that? I mean, it, it's a shame that, that their life had to, had to, to end in, in such a fashion. But I want you to hear a brief clip from one of the couple's pastor who spoke with them over the Christmas holiday about 10 weeks ago. And they shared with him what they were doing and, and uh, what God had called them to in their life and how they were stepping out and following that in obedience. And I don't know if you caught this on many of the, the mainstream media outlets. It's interesting to me how they kind of left out this detail of what was taking place in their life and why they were there. But I want you to hear this audio clip uh, of their reason for being in the place where they lost their lives uh, as a result. So go ahead. Scott and John and Jean, Adam, a Southern California couple, traveling the world to hand out Bibles. And their companions, Phyllis McKay and Bob Riggle of Seattle, were all taken hostage late last week. Their families getting the worst possible news. And so they chose to go on the high seas, to go to the far-flung corners of this earth. And their their way of doing that was to bring scriptures, to bring the Bible, to bring the word of God to, to people from all parts of this world. And so that's what they decided that they wanted to do in their retirement. They wanted to make a difference. to make a difference they didn't just send money they just didn't send boxes of Bibles they went themselves and they gave their lives for the cause of Christ can you imagine the scene of people in some of those countries who had been crying and seeking out and and wanting to know more about a God that they were aware of to say what can we know, where where are you Come, come and show us who you are And then sailing into their port or coming into their village, maybe by car, by truck, motorcycle, come these four Americans who say, we want you to know there's a God who loves you. And he sent us to bring you this book. And it has words, the words of life to tell you about his great love and about his son who came and died so that you could become one of his children. We don't even know how many people may have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ because they read the word of God that these people delivered to them. And we don't know how many more people may come to know Christ because those individuals are reading the word of God and they're saying, we need to go and tell others about this Jesus. A waste? A tragedy? From a human perspective, we may say that, but from a biblical perspective... They were seeds that died so they could bear much fruit for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. They wanted to make a difference. And the difference they wanted to make was for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, here's the best part. When they breathe their last on this earth, they open their eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ where they will be for all eternity. And if we had the ability and the opportunity to see and to communicate with them and say, hey, why don't you guys come back? We're, we're, we want you to come and we're going to stay here. We're not going to put you out there where there's danger and there, you know, there's a possibility. So we want you to come back and just live out the rest of your lives back here with us and with your families and safe and secure there in California or Seattle. Do you know what I think they would say? Thanks, but no thanks. We don't want to come back there with all the aches and the pains and the trials and the heartaches of life. But here's what we want you to know. We want you to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ so that when your time on that earth is over, you'll be here with us for all of eternity. Let's be reunited in eternity, not be together for a number of years on this earth. Well, church, we've just completed eight weeks looking at some of the commands and the demands of Jesus. And I've set before you as we've gone through this study a number of challenges as part of the radical challenge where I'm challenging you to put the words of Jesus to the test for a year. Will you accept that challenge? And I listed them on your bulletin insert there. You can see them, that they're not to earth shattering, that they're very simple, they're very basic. But will you accept that challenge to seek Christ with your whole heart for a year in these ways and see, just see what God does in and through you as a result. The call is clear. The issue is whether or not we are going to obey. So as we come to our time of invitation this morning, if you're here and you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never believed that Jesus died on the cross for you and invited him in to take control of your life and to forgive you of your sins and to give you that gift of eternal life. Our staff pastors are available, and we'd love to talk with you and lead you in a prayer to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ so you can become one of God's children. There are others here who need to surrender to the call of Christ today in some way and step out in faith, whether it's here, across the street, or around the world, so that your life will intersect the life of someone who's seeking who's wanting to know, who's ready to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So maybe you need to pray, Lord, help me, help me be bold in my witness. Help me be strong and step out in courage and, and step out in faith and follow you as you lead me in that way. But I pray that each of us today would, would pray and ask God to help us apply the principles of the radical challenge. It's not the radical challenge. This is what the Bible calls us to. David Platt didn't come up with the idea of saying, hey, you need to read your Bible on a regular basis. That was God's idea. That's why God gave us the Bible. It wasn't David Platt's idea. He's organized it and given us some illustrations of challenges. These are God's word. This is God's truth. And he's the one calling us to himself through these things. But I pray that we would all pray and say, God, how would you have me live out this radical challenge in my life? It's going to look different for every single one of us. It's going to look very different. But God is calling us to himself to live our lives in obedience. The question is, will we today, will we obey? Will we surrender ourselves to the point of laying down our lives for the cause of Christ, knowing that the end of ourselves is the beginning of Christ working in us and through us for God's glory and for the sake of his kingdom?